One of the questions that we posed right at the beginning of the book of Exodus is something that I want to lay on the table again this morning. We asked the question, what do the people of God do when the culture around them changes radically? Now remember, when we opened up Exodus chapter 1, those first few verses, the nation of Israel, the Hebrew children, are flourishing and multiplying in the land of Egypt, in the richest, most fertile part of that land, the land of Goshen. They are, in their own way, a settled, peaceful, favored nation in Egypt. But then very quickly, it says there arose a pharaoh who did not know Joseph, and things changed very quickly, and they became a nation of slaves. So what is God up to? What do we do? How do we perceive things? How do we move forward when the culture around us changes so radically? And there's so much for us to hear in the context of that question as we go through this passage of Scripture today. By the end of Exodus chapter 4, Moses and his family are back in Egypt. Aaron gathers Moses and the elders of the nation of Israel. They are told everything that God told Moses, what God had promised. They see the signs, the miracles that God gave Moses to give them, and they believe and they worship. While we've had a chapter and a half of this conversation between God and Moses, we now very quickly move through a lot of time and space as Moses goes from the land of Midian to meeting his brother back in Egypt reintroducing himself to the nation of Israel. But the chapter ends with belief and worship. So on our way back to Egypt in this passage of Scripture, we're going to discover that God takes his relationship with his people very seriously. We're going to see this manifest in a couple of ways this morning. We're going to see again how God is working from multiple angles to make this happen. It's not just God and Moses at the burning bush and then God and Moses make their way back to Egypt, but God is at work in multiple ways as the Exodus, the story of the Exodus, begins in earnest. Moses was, you might remember in his conversation with God, he was worried about what the people of Israel would say when he got back there. We're going to see that conversation, and we're going to see their first reaction to what God has to say to his people. God told Moses, I'm sending Aaron. He's on his way to meet you, and he is going to be your help. So we find that happen in this passage of Scripture. Aaron meets Moses at the mountain of God where Moses had been speaking with God, Uh, They may not have even seen each other for 40 years. We have this reunion of brothers and family, and they make their way back to Egypt. So we've spent a lot of time over the last couple of chapters talking about how God has called and sent Moses. Now we see in some special ways that God has prepared every step of the way. So in this passage of Scripture, here are some of the things that are going to help us make sense of what we read this morning. And the first is exactly that thought. God calls us and God prepares the way. Remember, every issue that Moses raised, every question Moses had about his call when he talked with God was answered by the character and the power of God. Every worry that Moses had about himself, God's answer was essentially, Moses, don't worry, I am more than enough, and I'm calling you and I'm sending you. 
And it's not that God sends Moses out. It's not that God sends us out into the world on our own to see how well we do. But God has prepared every step of the way. He's gone ahead of Moses. He goes ahead of us. And then we do see in a really interesting way that God takes his relationship with his people very seriously. When God establishes a covenant, this official relationship between him and his people, he considers it a two-way street. This is what I will do for you. And God always faithfully fulfills his end of the covenant. And then in that covenant, here is who you will be to me as well. And he expects us to fulfill that, to be faithful to that covenant relationship. And so God takes that very seriously. We discover along the way that there's a part of God's covenant with his people that Moses has not completed. And God stops him and makes him complete it. And then we see by the end of this chapter that the people of Israel are ready to worship and to believe. It's early in the story. They haven't faced a lot of the difficulty that's coming as a result of Moses coming back. But they've heard everything that God told Moses. Aaron's explained it all. And they see the miracles and, and they believe. And this is trust in their future. Moses says, this is what God has said, and this is what God is going to do, and here are these signs to prove to you the power of God and that he is with us. And they see that, and in this moment, they put the trust of their future in the hands of this God, and they worship and they believe. And the question is, how long is that going to last? So Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, let's read a section of this passage. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. That staff that he's used as a shepherd has now become the staff of God, the authority of God that he carries with him. Chapter, verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Nothing controversial there at all. So Moses has had this conversation with God. He goes back to his father-in-law, Jethro, and he says, will you allow me to go? There may still be members of my family, probably intending to mean there are members of his biological family that are still alive, but Moses knows that he has been given a job by God to take care of the larger family of God as well. And we see later on as the text moves and as the story moves along that Moses has a good relationship with Jethro. And later on, he and the entire nation of Israel are gonna be back at the mountain of God and Moses is gonna have another conversation with his father-in-law. 
So his father-in-law says, okay, go in peace. You and your family, I bless you. Go and see what is going on with your family. Do what God has called you to do. God even tells Moses at this point, go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. We have to remember, we go way back in the story when Moses is still in Egypt before he has fled and the difficulty that he had there. He goes out one day, he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave, and so then Moses kills the Egyptian taskmaster. And he thinks he has hidden it, and so he actually hides this body in the sand. The next day, he tries to break up a fight between two, um, two Hebrew brothers, and one of them says, now, wait a second, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian the other day? And then the text says, Pharaoh learns that Moses killed an Egyptian, so Pharaoh sought to take his life. So Moses has this target on his back, and he flees into the land of Midian. And so it's part of the process. God actually tells him, now, those individuals who sought your life, whatever group of people that was, that Pharaoh and others, they are now dead. So now he takes his wife, his sons, and a donkey, and his staff, and he starts to head back toward Egypt. Every now and then it's good for us to stop and pay attention to what an incredibly crafted piece of literature the book of Exodus is. The story is amazing. The revelation of the power and the goodness of God, all of that is absolutely incredible. But the text itself is so layered and so complex and so beautiful. There are so many pieces of the book of Exodus that remind us of significant events in the book of Genesis. And there are a lot of moments in the book of Exodus that are going to foreshadow significant events in the New Testament as well. So I want to make sure that we stay aware of some of those things. This part of Moses' life draws very close parallels to part of the story of Jacob in the book of Genesis. Jacob essentially steals his brother's uh, gift from the family, uh, his, his right as a firstborn son. So Jacob flees into a foreign land. He takes a wife from a foreign family. Um, he becomes a shepherd and works for his father-in-law. At a certain point, it's time for Jacob to go back home. So he takes his wife and his family and the sheep, and he leaves Laban. And there's, a, there's an incident along the way with his wife, Rachel. There's an incident along the way with Moses' wife, Zipporah. On his way back, Jacob is actually worried about his interaction because he's going to meet his brother Esau along the way. So on his way back to where he belongs with his family, Jacob runs into Esau. That goes okay, he makes his way back home. As Moses heads back toward Egypt, he meets his brother Aaron, and then with Aaron, he goes back to where he belongs, so to speak, in the land of Egypt. So we're intended to say God is, God is doing things. He's up to things. He's putting things back where they belong. But then there are elements in the story as well that should cause us to think, I have read something like this before in the Christmas story. A man who's going to be the small s savior of his people, not the capital S savior, but he's going to act as God's servant to save his people, puts his small family on a donkey, takes his staff, and goes to Egypt because everyone who sought his life is now dead. You go and you read the story of Mary and Joseph, and because Herod sought the child's life, they flee to Egypt, and then one day an angel of the Lord comes to them and says, everyone who sought the life of the child is dead, so they make their way back. So the text is constantly reminding us of how God has worked in the past 
And then it's foreshadowing of how God is going to work in the future as well. So he puts his family on a donkey, he takes his staff, and he goes to Egypt. And then in verse 21, God continues to explain to Moses what's going to happen, and we have this conversation again. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, and we begin to imagine everything that starts to happen with um, the, the power encounters between Moses and Pharaoh and the magicians, and then eventually with the plagues themselves. And God says this, though, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, and Moses does this constantly, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. My firstborn son, God describes the nation of Israel as. That's significant in this passage. Let my son, my firstborn son go so that they may serve me and worship me. If you do not, I will kill your firstborn son. So God has drawn the nation of Israel into himself in a very personal fashion. It's not just his people that he will use to meet an end. This is actually the family of God. This is how God sees it. But this is what he tells Moses. Go tell Pharaoh everything we've talked about. Show him what I've shown you. He's going to refuse to let you go. And then warn him, if you don't let my son go, God will kill your firstborn son. Since that's self-explanatory, let's all move on to the next passage of Scripture. I want to ask this question. What does it mean for Pharaoh's heart to be hardened? We should talk about this because this becomes a significant part of the story with each and every plague. We get that language one way or another every single time. Moses is told before he gets back to Egypt that God is going to harden the heart of Pharaoh. What does it mean for this to happen? We read this with all of the plagues. And we read that Pharaoh refuses to let the people of God go, no matter how great the power of God that shows up. No matter how much destruction and death happens around him, Pharaoh gets harder and harder against God, and he refuses to let them go. There are a couple of times as the plagues move on where the text says, actually, and Pharaoh repented of his sin and asked Moses to make all of this stop. But then Pharaoh makes another about face and refuses to let the people of God go. This is how hard the heart of Pharaoh is against the people of God and against the will of God. The language is important for us. The way it develops is important for us. In the first five plagues, the language of Pharaoh in his heart is some version of Pharaoh's heart is hardened or he hardened his own heart. So the text even sees responsibility on the part of Pharaoh. The second five of the plagues, the last five of the plagues, all say, and the Lord hardened his heart. So we see the sovereign hand of God at work 
But the text never takes responsibility away from Pharaoh. The text doesn't do it. The ancient commentators never released Pharaoh from his responsibility for the evil and the tyranny of his behavior. He hardens his own heart against God. Now, here's part of what's interesting about the language. When we read the word harden, that's not exactly what the Hebrew word means. The Hebrew word means to strengthen, to make stronger. So an interpretive version of that word is he hardens his heart, but when we read the language, we immediately think of God removing Pharaoh's free will from him, when as a matter of fact, what is happening is Pharaoh's heart, his will, and his character is becoming stronger and stronger and stronger. He's becoming more himself with every passing plague. It's important that we understand what's happening in the language in the way the sea, the way, the way we watch the text make it develop. So Pharaoh is inclined against God in a powerful way. He's inclined against God in a very powerful way. Now, heart in Scripture does not mean our emotions. Heart in both Old and New Testament speaks more about the character of an individual or their willpower, what we want to do, what we will to do. So Pharaoh's character, his will, is being strengthened against God every step of the way. So when his heart grows harder, it grows stronger against God. One ancient Jewish commentator said a good way of understanding that is this, this is that Pharaoh is emboldened against God every step of the way. This is if God says, Pharaoh, if you don't let my people go, this is what's going to happen. And Pharaoh says, bring it. I can deal with this. I don't think you're actually going to do it. He's emboldened against God every step of the way. So Pharaoh already a strong person, already probably the most powerful person on earth at this time, becomes more and more inclined against God, becomes more himself every step of the way. And every scholar that I read, and I found this fascinating, every scholar, the Jewish and the Christian scholars, say the same thing about what happens inside of Pharaoh's heart. This is a strengthening of his will. This is a strengthening of his natural inclination against God. It's not a stripping of his free will. It's not as if Pharaoh would have done something else. It's that this is exactly what Pharaoh would have done every step of the way. So his, his will grows harder and harder against God. And this is important because Pharaoh becomes the most powerful version of himself along the way. That's important because God will show himself to be more powerful than the most powerful tyrant on the face of the earth. God will show himself to be more powerful than the gods worshiped by the most powerful empire on earth. So we're not dealing with weaklings here. We're not dealing with a small nation and weak gods, so to speak. We're dealing with the strongest there is, the strongest opposition to God there possibly could be. Now, this is not a perfect analogy, 
But think in terms of parents, parenting, strong-willed children. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. You can groan along the way if you'd like to do that. But if a parent lays out instructions, guidelines, barriers, gives instruction along the way, says if you cross this barrier, there are going to be consequences of this behavior to this behavior. What does the strong will of the child inclined against their parents do? I'm going to hit that barrier, and every chance I get, I'm going to go past that barrier. So when the parents then drop the consequences in the lap of that child, who's to blame? And then the parents say, okay, we're going to draw a barrier, and there's going to be consequences. They instruct, and they guide, and again, that child just continues. That child hasn't had their free will taken away from them by their parents because of the boundaries that have been drawn. The will of that child grows more and more apparent all the time. Strong will of Pharaoh against God wants to blow through every single one of these barriers. His will becomes more apparent all the time. So this is part of what's so important about why this happens, why this language is important to the story. The display of God's great power leaves no question about who is Israel's savior. It leaves no question about who is the great sovereign savior. If Pharaoh is more of a politician than he is a tyrant, he may be inclined at the first sign of opposition to say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and let you go. Your God is so weak, all he can do is turn staffs into snakes. My magicians can do that, but I'm going to claim the role of Savior and I'm going to let you go. That's not the Pharaoh we're dealing with. We're dealing with a tyrant, not a politician. Now, this is also interesting. If Moses is seen as too much of a powerful, influential leader, people may start to see him as their savior. So it's incredibly important every step of the way that the bottom line is only one person could do this, and this is God and God alone. The God is the king of kings, and he alone is the savior of his people. So with the entire story of Pharaoh's heart itself being strong against God and the language of God strengthening Pharaoh's heart against him, we are watching God the sovereign Savior in control of the entire process. We have to become comfortable with that because this is how God reveals himself through the story of Exodus. God reigns over nations God reigns over kings, and God reigns over the human heart. So God tells Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. If you don't let my son go, I will kill your firstborn son. To the average American ear, we read that, and that might seem a little bit overdone to us, a little bit harsh. Couldn't God do it a different way? Isn't there a way to maybe save Pharaoh and get out of this somehow? We tend to be people who are ready to love and give grace, and then when these moments of the judgment of God show up, sometimes we squirm just a little bit. 
But the threat is clear, and if you know the story of the plagues, it happens. It actually, literally happens. Pharaoh and this line of pharaohs, look at it like this, have already killed more Hebrew sons than any of us could ever possibly know. That was the decree early on in the book of Exodus. We need to throw every newborn Hebrew son into the Nile River. Moses is saved from that, but how many were not? So then God turns to this tyrannical regime, and he says, I have a son in Egypt, and if you don't let my son go, I'm going to take your son from you. Now, the way the plagues escalate is important for us to watch. Friends, it turns out that the deeper the evil power of the state is, the harder it will be to stop it. The bloodier will be the exodus from the power of the tyrants. And that's part of what we're watching happen as the plagues begin. This is an important realization for us. We've talked about Pharaoh as a tyrant, and now we're going to actually deal with him behaving like a tyrant. So this is important biblically for us. Tyrants destroy the lives of their people to advance their power. God's leaders give themselves up for the sake of the people of God. There's going to be a lot of destruction and blood as these plagues continue. Do you think Pharaoh cares? He doesn't. He's a tyrant. Tyrants do harm to the people that they rule for their own power and for their own good. But we're watching a different kind of leadership. We're watching a different kind of man of God show up in Moses, a man who is more than anything else described as a servant in Scripture, who will actually give himself out for the sake of the people of God. So God's men and women do different things than tyrants do. Tyrants are selfish. And because they have so much power, their sins do a lot of harm, right? God's leaders are sacrificial. God's leaders are sacrificial on behalf of the good of God's people. God is the sovereign savior. He's stronger than even the tyrant Pharaoh. So God says, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. But that plague, we've got a ways to go before we get there, right? Some of you are already thinking the way you preach, Pastor Phil, we've got a long ways to go before we get to that plague. So that plague is out there in the future, and we still need to get Moses back into Egypt. So Moses is on his way back to Egypt, and then this happens. Verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. So God left Moses alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. I told you you are going to be glad you were here this morning. <laughs> no kidding. 
The scholars are universal, ancient, modern, Jewish, Christian. The first thing they say when they begin to comment on this passage of Scripture is, what in the... Now, that's a paraphrase. Every single one of them says this is a difficult passage of Scripture to understand. And it's difficult for a couple of reasons. Some of the vocabulary and the language is a little bit difficult. The pronouns, to whom exactly are we referring, Moses or his son? There are things that, you know, we're referring to Moses most likely, but what's going on here? Who does the Lord want to kill? Why on earth, after God does all of this with Moses and sends him on his way, and he threatens to kill Pharaoh's son, that God shows up like this and threatens to kill Moses until the circumcision takes place? Okay, that all by itself is really interesting. And then Zipporah, she goes through the act of circumcising probably his eldest son, Gershon, we know his name, and then she says, you have become a bridegroom of blood to me. Is she angry at Moses? Or is this just a description, a literal description of the blood that's been shed to save Moses' life? There are a lot of questions about this passage, but we do know a few things for sure. And when passages like this show up, The best way to deal with them is, well, what do we know for sure? How do we connect this to other things in Scripture to make sense of what's happening here? We do know a couple of things for sure in this passage. For some reason, Moses has not circumcised his son, for whatever reason that is. Now, Moses was raised as a young boy in the home of his biological mother and father, so he was probably given uh, the, the covenant, the sign of circumcision. So see, he himself has probably been circumcised, but for whatever reason, he hasn't circumcised his son. Is it out of neglect? Is it because he's married a Midianite wife and into a Midianite family? His father-in-law is a high priest in Midian. Did his family refuse to go through this process? We just don't know for sure, but for whatever reason, Moses has not circumcised his son. We know that God shows up in anger, and it seems to come out of nowhere. That's not what we were expecting. We saw Moses and his family and the donkey and the staff, and they're on their way, and then all of a sudden, this happens. Why is God so angry? The more I thought about this particular moment, and why it hits us so hard. So in the text itself, it's as if we kind of hit the speed bump and we've got to make sense of what we just sort of rolled over. But again, there's this sense in Scripture that why on earth does God get mad at that? That doesn't make sense to me. It is easy to be inclined against God in this passage of Scripture. That seems a little over the top, God. Why would you do that? Why is the language so stark so quickly? And you and I, as Christians in our culture right now, we need to be careful with a couple of things. You and I need to avoid the fallacy of imposing our niceness on God. We need to avoid the fallacy of imposing our cultural value, maybe one of the dominant values in our culture right now, tolerance on God. <clears throat> that any version of no, you can't do that is evil. Because if we have imposed those kinds of values on the character of God, then when God shows up and does something we don't like, we call him bad. 
We call him evil. We disagree with him because he does not align with what we think God should have said. We have to be careful with that. One of the things that God reveals through the story of Exodus, through the giving of the law, especially with the Ten Commandments, is this. God says, I am the standard of everything that is good and evil. I am the moral judge. I am the moral lawgiver, which means Phil is not. I don't get to impose my values on God. I learn from him what is right and good and true, even when sometimes it might hit me in a weird way. This reminds me of a great conversation inside of C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Some of you know exactly where I'm going. It's a story, it's a conversation between Lucy and two beavers. Right there you know it's gotta be good. Speaking of Aslan, the character of Christ in the Chronicles of Narnia. And isn't he safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He is good. He may not be safe, but he's the king. What a powerful way to see this passage of Scripture, because he isn't safe at this moment. But he is good, and he is the king. So the story plays out, and Moses' wife Zipporah circumcises their oldest son. Zipporah saves the day. It's through the shedding of the blood of the firstborn son that Moses is saved from the wrath of God. Okay, now who's heard that kind of story before? I told you Exodus is this great little book. But Zipporah saves Moses' life, and this rounds out this theme early in the book of Exodus of women literally saving the life of Moses. You've got the... Uh, the Hebrew midwives, and you have his mother and what she decides to do with him, and the sister who follows him down the Nile, and then you've got Pharaoh's daughter who lives in the household that commanded that all of the Hebrew sons should be drowned in the Nile River. So she sees a Hebrew son in the Nile River, and she saves him instead of drowning him. And now we have Zipporah saving Moses' life through the act of circumcision. It's this beautiful theme early on in the book of Exodus. And then she tells him, she takes, she takes it, it's bloody, and she places it on his feet. She said, you are becoming bridegroom of blood to me. Is she angry at Moses? It's very hard to tell. At the very least, this is a literal description of Moses' neglect, that we have shed the blood of our son because of this, so you have become a bridegroom of blood. Why is this story important? Why is this story here? Why, why take time with this part of the story? And here's why, I think. God takes the identity of his people seriously. God takes the identity of his people seriously. We go all the way back to the relationship between God and Abraham. And as God establishes his covenant relationship with Abraham, 
God says things like, I am going to give you a family and I'm going to bring them back to the land. I've promised you this land. This is what I am going to do. And Abraham believed God and it became his righteousness. But then later on, that, uh, that covenant gets extended to the act of circumcision. And Abraham, I expect all of your sons to be circumcised as part of this covenant. Genesis chapter 17, verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And as awkward as that story might be for us sometimes as we read through passages of Scripture like this, this is a consistent theme through Scripture. That God takes this seriously as a sign of his people's identity with him. This is what you're going to do. And this is going to be part of the signal that you belong to me. Now we find another moment early in the Old Testament where this comes back again, where God's people have to be rededicated to God before they can move forward. This happens in conquering the promised land. Joshua and the people have crossed the River Jordan, but before we get to the Battle of Jericho, every fighting age male has to be circumcised. Joshua chapter 5 Verse 2, none of you expected a long conversation on circumcision this morning. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. And what that means is the rest of the text explains that all of the people of Israel who came out of Egypt with Moses, they had already been circumcised. But all of their children born in the wilderness had not yet been. So now we've got this um, army of fighting age young men who have not yet been circumcised. And, and God tells Joshua, before you move forward, we have to do this. This is the covenant. You belong to me. I take your identity seriously. This is not just an issue important to the Old Testament. The importance of this pulls itself into the New Testament and the identity of the church of Jesus Christ as we belong to God. The Apostle Paul speaks of it several times in the importance of what he calls the circumcision of the heart. In Romans chapter two, part of that story goes like this in verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. He's speaking of a child of God is someone who has been circumcised in their heart. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. Again, not our emotions, our character, our will, the very life spring of our identity. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. We do not seek the praise of human beings, but we are to be people who belong to God in the deepest possible sense, in our hearts, our wills, our character, our souls, that we are identifiable as the people of God. That's what Paul says. So he takes that concept, he pulls it into the life of the church, and he says it's critical God takes your identity seriously. You and I identify with him. And Paul's point, very simply, our public identity as God's people is critical. 
if we believe and obey, if we are circumcised in this spiritual sense that Paul says, our lives belong to God, and just as important, everyone else knows our lives belong to God. This is part of the point of this symbol. This is part of the point of the notion of identifying as the people of God. It's not that we do it privately. We sneak in and out of church. We don't act publicly as if we are different from the rest of the world. Paul is saying, do you or don't you belong to him in the deepest core of who you are? Our public identity as the people of God is still important to Jesus Christ. So we are faced with more and more issues like, am I willing to do what it takes to identify as someone who belongs to Jesus Christ? Or have I become too comfortable blending into the crowd, avoiding this issue publicly, finding ways to not rock the boat? Whatever it is, have we become comfortable as people who identify as those who belong to Jesus Christ? Or is the cost of sticking out too high? Do we think the cost of being different is just too high? Well, there's a little bit more to this story. Verses 27 through the end of the chapter. We actually get a little bit of a flashback to God speaking with Aaron. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses said to Aaron, or excuse me, then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads in worship. I remember that's such an important piece of uh, how this story has been unfolding is that God tells Moses and the narrator of Exodus tells us, God sees the affliction of his people. He remembers, he knows he's going to act. And when the people of Israel hear this and they see the signs and the miracles and they hear what Aaron and Moses have to say, they realize, yes, God has seen our affliction. So God has sent Moses into the wilderness, exactly what he told Moses was going to do. So God is at work in Pharaoh in Egypt. God is at work with Aaron before he meets Moses. So Aaron comes and meets him. They go and they have this conversation with the elders of Israel and they believe and they worship. And again, the question is, how long is that going to last? At best, that reaction to the hand of God, it's going to be a little bit of a roller coaster for the people of God. The way they interact with Moses and Aaron and even Miriam, and as it moves forward, is going to become something for you and I to confront about our relationships with God. But we see that God has set the stage and he has prepared the way back into Egypt and prepared the way for the Exodus. Egypt and Pharaoh. The tyrant is ready to do exactly what a tyrant does. 
but he's going to be defeated by the God who is above every other God. The hardness of his heart will make the power of God clear and apparent to everyone. God has been working with Moses. He and his family now are dedicated to the Lord. They have fulfilled the covenant that God made with Abraham. And now he can go into Egypt as God's man, as part of God's covenant. God has been at work amongst the people of Israel as well. They see and they hear what the Lord has given them, and they believe. I think this is important for us to process as we're sort of on the edge of things getting more and more difficult. This is the deep breath before the plunge. At the end of this chapter, man, they've heard the good news. They've seen the cool miracles happen. Yeah, I believe, and I'm going to worship this God. In the next chapter, it gets worse for them. Everything they've been told about the Lord is true. Everything he said he is, Everything he said he will do, it's all true. They will be freed and brought into the promised land. But it's going to get harder before it gets better. Everything God tells us about himself in his word is true. Every promise of salvation, every promise of new life, every promise of eternal life, All of it is true. Will we worship God? Will we believe when we hear the great stories and we see the miraculous signs and everything within us goes, yes, I want that? And will we believe and will we worship when we're walking through the wilderness and we don't know where we're going? What if things get harder before they get better? either in our lives individually or our families or culturally? What if things get harder before they get better? Will we still worship and believe? So important for us to hear. What do we do when culture changes around us? And walking faithfully as people who belong to Jesus Christ and what God has revealed in his word just more and more cuts against the grain of what is easy to do and believe. What will we do? Will we continue to worship? Will we continue to believe? Will we continue to endure in faithfulness? Or will we murmur and grumble and complain? Will we want to go back so that we can die in Egypt where there were enough graves to die there at least? What will we do? Friends, we need to worship and believe no matter what. Let's pray.